Hello and welcome to Aboriginal Way Radio. I'm Joy Lothian. This week we're bringing you the second part in a two-part series about the newly published book Loving Country by Bruce Pascoe and Vicky Shuglaruglu. Bruce and Vicky recently recorded this interview with Adelaide-based poet and broadcaster Mike Ladd for local bookshop Matilda Books. Thanks to them and also to Hardy Grant Publishing for allowing us to play this insightful interview. If you missed part one, you might enjoy listening to that before this episode. You can find it either on our website at nativetitlesa.org or by searching Aboriginal Way on Apple iTunes or iHeartRadio. Let's get into the interview. Vicky, in Namaji up the top of that hill uh, where we saw that dingo, do you want to talk about that? You go. I'll add. Yeah, well, uh, one uh, one late afternoon, climbed that hill because we were looking. There's a couple of Aboriginal sites there that we had found at the very end of a long walk and didn't have the right cameras or didn't have, you know, we're running out of time anyway. And so went back the next evening to photograph and find these places again. And um, as we approached, I, I saw a dingo jump off a rock and I, I thought it would just disappear like most dingoes do. Um, but I indicated to, to Vicky to go to the side and see if she could spy out this dingo. And um, I bet he took this incredible video on this animal. Yeah, I think I'm looking at the dingo now. I'm on page 28 here. Yeah, that's a that's a still from the video. So he, we think it's a male, um, was sort of bowing and meowing and talking to us um, in the most extraordinary ways. And he was playing with Cassinia sticks and he really seemed to want to um, make connection with us with a really sort of um with real intention and he kept coming towards us tentatively but playfully uh until something you know he was almost just two meters away um until something frightened him to the far right and um he took off but it was an extraordinary experience i think neither of us will ever forget Mm. and these are sort of really fine blessings that would never happen if we were noisy or if we were um, going through country in a less caring way. And, and that, that dingo was showing us a, an injured leg and, um, you know, kept on limping forward toward us, indicating this injured leg. But when whatever it was that scared him, he ran off quite healthily. Very well. <laughs> <laughs> He wanted us to feel sorry. Limping for sympathy. Sympathy with right. yeah. um, There's a lovely passage of writing just below that that I wanted to ask you about anyway. It talks about the world's most modest civilization. I think this connects with Bruce, what you're saying, and Vicky about quietness. The world's most modest civilization, not modest in the sense of innocence and inability, but modest in demand upon the earth modest in the refusal to abuse, the fervent desire to care and protect, that kind of hopelessly unpopular conservatism. And that, you know, the evaluation of civilization is such an interesting point, I think, is to, you know, people will evaluate them in terms of how much territory they got or how big the cities were. But this this is a whole different way of looking at a civilization as how modest it is. 
how much it looks after the environment, how long it can last and be sustainable. I mean, these are whole different ways of looking at civilization. And frankly, we haven't been looking at it that way in the culture of, that I was born into. Um, and it's really taken these kind of works to wake me up to it. We need to, we need to want less and, and love more. Um, we eat too much, we consume too much. Um, you know, it's clear that it's damaging the earth and even the, the greatest fan of industrialization and globalization, you know, in quiet moments will tell you that we cannot sustain this pace without ruining our home. So we need to be more modest in, in our needs, our desires, and, and get more of our sustenance from the country itself rather than from eating it and mining it. Um, this is not about, you know, this is not anti-capitalism or pro-communism because I always say that the communists train the RLC. So, you know, that's not a feather in anyone's cap. Um, but it's about care. It's, it's about not treating ourselves as pampered children, um, you know, that need to put stuff in their mouth all the time and to titillate their fancy. You know, we just need to be more modest. I, I just think about um, a story my um, grandfather told um, and it, he was talking about a bottle of beer and, you know, he was a hardworking man. He was a fencer and, um, he and his, um, Aboriginal mate at the end of the day would share a bottle of beer, you know, 750 mil, take the cap off, talk, pour two glasses, put the cap back on and into the cooler bag it'd go. That's it. That was, and that was for them absolute delight. Um, and you know, we're not like that now. We consume so much. Um, and those, my father and those two fellas slept underneath the wagon. You know, the demands on, on the earth were so small compared to what they are today. We, we do have to be far more modest and far more loving. You know, I'm not trying to be too coy um, we just have to love love the earth and and, and worry when 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 we when we do damage to her, uh, we have to worry about it. You know, if there's an oil spill, um, that oil was going to go into our cars, so it's our responsibility. It's not Exxon's fault. Exxon was bringing the oil to us. You know, their inability to keep it in the ship um, is a problem, but it's our fault too. We're all responsible for this. I, I, um, you know, still today in 2020, I have to ask this because at times I despair and still today in 2020, sacred trees are cut down for a highway, sacred caves are blown up for iron ore. I mean, how do we not despair? You're, you're writing a beautiful positive book here, but how do we not despair when things like that keep happening? Well, it's, I, think, it's hard, um, I can tell you here um, because after the fires in um, Far East Gippsland, um, it seemed like the forest was to blame 
you know, it wasn't us, the people, it was the forest was out to get us. So instead of addressing the problem that had caused the fire, that is the, the style of agriculture and forestry that we had adopted, we attacked the biggest trees and trees all up and down the highway, all up and down every road were cut down pretty indiscriminately and always the biggest ones. So we lost canoe trees, we lost ring trees, and we lost sacred trees. And habitat um, trees. Yeah. Of which there the are very few. Are where, are where the owls and gliders are, um, where the eagle nests. Um, but one of the trees that really hurt me, and I, I, I felt in my heart that it was going, um, was um, on the top of Mount Drummer. I couldn't get there because the road was closed. But Uncle Max Harrison and Uncle Munns Harrison used to sleep in that tree as Uncle Munns took his law up and down the east coast of Australia. And that tree didn't burn down in, in the fire. It was cut down. Cut down because it was a threat to us. It was a killer tree. Mm. I was I was so so upset by that, but we cannot allow things like that to upset us to the point where we stop our action, because that is is what is supposed to happen. We are supposed to lose heart. If we lose heart, we give up on our grandchildren. We give up on our noisy dogs. We give up on the, the great forests. We can't afford to let it happen. So um, even though there are times when I, I feel really hurt by the actions of uh, uncaring people and people who treat uh, Australia like a mine, I refuse to give in. And I think it's also really important to know that people are in all sorts of different ways taking really positive action. You know, I've driven through hundreds of kilometers of barren land, land that has been treated in devastating ways. And then there are other people who farm it in very different ways and leave great stretches of bush that is connected habitat, not tiny islands where no animals can really survive. And so I think, you know, there is some awareness in different areas and people in all walks of life are contemplating things. And I think those are the um, things to consider, but the conversations that we really need to have are the difficult ones with people that, um, who might not agree with us or who might not see what is valuable in the same way. And they're the conversations that are really important. Yes, yeah. And I mean, that's the nice thing about this book that it does give heart, it gives, you know, hope as well I think it um, it inspires you to have those conversations with people who might not see the, the values the same way as as probably most of us on this call do. Um, I, I like the fact in the book that it's not only your reflections on things but there's also quite a practical side to it in that it, in the end of each chapter there's a, um, a guide to contacting uh, Indigenous people in the area to be shown through the country. So it's, it's quite practical. But 
you did write it at the times of the pandemic and the fires. So and there's also a proviso, <laughs> check, call first before you, you know, you've got to check first. And that whole subject of fire is in the background of this book. And I mean, it's a big question, but, but how do we manage, how should we manage fire now in this country with, given that it's so broken up into fences and private property? I mean, how can we bring back those wise ways of Indigenous fire management? Well, I think it's an opportunity, you know, in much the same way we can rethink our agriculture and how we farm animals. And, you know, farmers will talk about killing kangaroos. Um, you know, we just need to change the way we think about land ownership and the way we think about how we care for that land and how we can cooperate rather than um, work in isolation. And so those old, old systems of knowledge, which in many places are still alive and well, um, and are very particular to each, each country. So it's, you know, different time, different country, different situation, different weather patterns. It's extremely variable and we have to be very cautious of applying the same things to different places. And so with today's scientific knowledge and people's observation and that old knowledge of the Indigenous people in different places that is still strong, you know, I think we have terrific opportunities, but we do need to make a change for how we think and how we work together. Mm. And I Bruce. think it's really important that we look at um, Aboriginal forestry um, and management of, of the forest, which obviously is uh, territory specific. Um, but in this country, um, you and country down here, we know uh, from European evidence that uh, there were 10 to 15 really large trees to the acre. And in the in the flatlands at least, uh, the understory was relatively clear and there were Aboriginal crops growing beneath them. This is from the evidence of uh, explorers, so-called explorers and so-called pioneers. And, and now um, there are 300 to 400 trees to the acre. Um, and this is because of our forestry technique is um, encouraging the forest to coppice. So we've got a lot of little tiny trees and this is suiting forestry uh, at the moment who want to chip it and send it to Japan so we can uh, bring it back as hamburger wrappers. Um, and we need to, um, you know, the green and the left, I think have failed to talk to Australia um, ab about forestry in this country. Um, it's a, a real lack um, that when I first came into this country here, it was nothing to go into a forestry coup and find 20 people there sitting down having a cup of tea at Smoko while, uh, you know, while they went about their business in the forest. Now, when you go into the forest and you hear a machine operating, there's likely to be one person there and that person is operating two machines. Um, a, a machine that operates like a celery picker um, and then, then in stack, stacks it onto a truck and he, that same person drives the truck away. Um, and this is complete 
um, unemployment in progress uh, for bush communities and and yet we've not explained to the community or 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 not had that conversation to say listen no it's not the greens who um, made you unemployed it's machines and you know, it's a style of forestry instead of pulping our forests why don't we make furniture out of it why don't we make house frames out of it like we used to do um, you know, I think it's a real conversation that we have to have. It will be, you know, brutal and nasty at times, perhaps because we're humans, but we have to have a better conversation about it. And mm. we, we have to value every stick of timber that we decide to take down. We have to uh, say to Mother Earth, do you mind if I take this? I really need it. It's for this purpose. And that conversation alone will make you more conservative. We also have to take hold of the word conservative and use it properly. And it, it's, it is imperative that we are more conservative. You know, we, like I was saying before, we need to eat less and we need to use less. And every time we cut down a tree, we have to have a real good purpose for that tree and value the timber. And when that house that we build out of that tree's timber um, falls down, we use every other, we every, use every stick. I've been on building sites recently where all the timber out of a house, because it had nails and it was burnt. That's a disgrace. Crazy, um, yeah. You're talking we, about we conservative in a sense, not in a right wing sense or a, a reactionary sense. You're talking about that care factor again, about take, simply taking care and trying to save things. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are some positive signs too. I've seen positive signs where CFS starting to work with Aboriginal elders on, you know, mosaic burning patterns and, and, and learning from them as to how to do it. So you both write in this book a lot about Indigenous plants and farming, Indigenous farming and agriculture. And, you know, what should we do, be doing to make food production in this country more sustainable? Um, well, Vicky has an, um, an opinion on this too, because Vicky's been involved in the, uh, yeah, the Vicky. growing of many of these plants. Yeah. But um, on the farm here on the Wallagra, we're um, uh, growing Murnong, we're growing kangaroo grass, we're growing dancing grass, uh, we're growing um, uh, tubers and lilies, um, and we've got salad vegetables on the the swampy flat. Um, we're trying, and they're all perennial. Uh, they're all going to grow there anyway because they're Australian plants and they love their country. Uh, they're going to grow there, but so many of them we've just ignored. And um, we need to love our country and we need to taste our country and be confident with her. Um, and when um, uh, Vicky and I first had a, a conversation, it was about Monon. Murnong and children, and um, oh, I think that's a good yarn. What's that? The Murnong. Mm. Mm. So when Bruce and I first met, Bruce was lamenting that nobody knew about Murnong, and it's such an important plant um, for the earth and for the old people who really um, cultivated it and was a real staple of their diet. And then when the sheep 
and cattle were brought in, you know, it affected its growth completely and um, contributed to the starvation of a lot of people. And at the time, well, a few months prior, I'd been working with a group of kids in Mount Clear in Victoria, and we'd been talking about Murnong and that story of it growing in their country. And we went and saw it in the forests there, certainly not as prolific as it would have been. And those children made incredible um, drawings and images of that story in a way. And so I approached Bruce and wanted to let him know that people do know about it and that there is conversation and learning happening. And I think those conversations are so important to support each other, but also um, to really encourage people to see what is in their own backyard. So, you know, as I've been traveling around this incredible country, um, like when I arrived in the southwest of WA, extraordinary biodiversity and so many plants I was looking at. You know, I know a lot about plants. I look at them a lot. I love them a lot. And most of these plants, I was thinking, I don't even know what family you are or what, you know, how you connect, what you are. And um, it's just such an interesting thing to become intimate with the plants in your place because they all have different ways of growing, different seasons, different functions for different animals and for us. Mm. And there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge. And, you know, we need to find ways to really honour it. Mm. And there's, um, it's a, just for those who don't know, Murnong, it's, it's like a little uh, tuber, isn't it, from a, a daisy-like plant that, that, yeah. that was once planted, you know, in huge acreage by Aboriginal so people. Fun. It's a, like, a, like a little dandelion fly, flower, very much like a little dandelion flower. And with it seeds prolifically. With a very nutritious it. tuber. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much. And, per, and perennial. Yes. Um, so there's no ploughing required. This is the important thing in a, with Australia's light soils. We need to be looking at, at plants where we don't need to plough, where we're not releasing carbon out of the soil, we're not exposing um, mycorrhizals to the atmosphere. You know, we need to keep soil intact and save soil. So perennials do that. Yeah. And are also beautiful to eat. Yeah. They'll, they'll take over from potatoes in this country. Mm. And look, there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. I've run out of time, really. We're supposed to wrap this up soon, but you know, I'm, I'm, flabbergasted by some of the details in this book and you know things like the Brewarina fish traps the oldest human constructions on earth why the hell don't we know more about this um and you know you the things about Mitchell riding through country seeing you know villages permanent villages that could house a thousand people I was never taught any of this as a schoolboy. I was told that Aboriginal people were nomadic, nomadic people who just maybe built a few bark shelters here and there, and that was it. And there's sort of a, a great conspiracy of silence around it, which, um, you know, perhaps we can guess why um, people didn't want to see, the, the colonists didn't want to, the proof of occupation and land use that was there. Um, but. This book certainly brings that out. And I mean, we could talk a lot more, but I, I better wrap it. Uh, but I would like to say, is there anything else that 
Becky, you'd like to say, and then Bruce, just to throw anything in that you'd like to have a final word on. I just hope that um, people really start giving their hearts to where they live and to where they move through um, and tending to places in different ways. And Bruce? Um, and I'd like to um, uh, talk about uh, Stapleton's diary, Mitchell's Offsider, which has only just been published. And it's a really good read um, and, you know, has more information about some of the things that um, I talk about in, in this book. Um, but I also want, want people to uh, love the son, um, grandfather son, because uh, look, Vicky's in South Australia, I'm in Victoria and we are seeing uh, a different face of uh, grandfather at the same time. So this is our life, you know, this is not um, televisable, this is uh, our world. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. Bruce and Vicky. That was Bruce Pascoe and Vicky Shuglaruglu discussing their newly published book, Loving Country, in conversation with Adelaide-based poet and broadcaster Mike Ladd. Thanks for listening to Aboriginal Way Radio this week. The show is brought to you by South Australian Native Title Services and, as always, you can listen back to any old episodes of the podcast on our website, nativetitlesa.org, or on Apple iTunes. Until next week, bye.